welcome to a very special episode of the ID Talk podcast, presented in association with our premier identity industry partner, No Identity Conference. My name is Peter Counter, and I am the editor-in-chief of Fine Biometrics and Mobile ID World, and I am very excited to present the virtual conference panel, That Human Touch, Diversity in Biometrics. Originally scheduled for the No Identity Conference before the event went 100% virtual in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, this fascinating conversation explores the key technical and ethical considerations required to build the next generation of biometric technologies driving inclusion efforts across the globe. How do we course correct for algorithmic biases? How do we securely secure biometric templates? What are the most effective biometrics to focus on? This session explores the ethical considerations of wide-scale biometric deployment and the data security and privacy challenges organizations must consider prior to expanding into new markets. Moderated by Susan Stover, Vice President of Digital Content at Five Biometrics and Mobile ID World, this panel features world-leading experts on the discussed topics. Cameron D'Ambrosi, Principal at One World Identity, Hussein Gassai, CEO and co-founder of OnFido, and David Ray, COO and General Counsel at Rank One Computing. It's a lively discussion on a crucial topic with serious ethical implications for the identity and biometrics industries, and I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, I am pleased to present the panel, That Human Touch, Diversity in Biometrics, on the ID Talk podcast. Let's start by setting the stage. Over the past decade, the identity and access landscape has evolved dramatically, expanding from simple password security questions and CAPTCHA security to contain an arsenal of choice. From all sorts of secondary factors to almost every biometric you can think of, there are more ways to authenticate now than ever before. How has that expansion of digital identity landscape affected users in their day-to-day interactions? David, can we start with you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Susan. Uh, I think to start with, there's a variety of choices with multi-factor authentication. Uh, it's primarily what you know, what you have, and who you are. In the wake of you know traditional username password uh, is where where the internet started. And in the light of a lot of major data breaches, including Equifax, Marriott, uh, even the Office of Personnel Management has lost the records of everyone that has applied for a security clearance to China. Those those data breaches have eroded all of the what you know factors because all of the data about you, username, password, security questions, social security number, date of birth, everything is available on the dark web. So that has really defeated the what you know step of of authentication. What you have, we're all familiar with from two-factor authentication, whether it's with a a physical fob, uh, an authenticator application, uh, or a text message or email is a second factor. Those ensure that you have current access to a physical device or separate service. And there's, of course, separate security vulnerabilities that vary across those modalities. Who you are is what we're we're really seeing in, in terms of biometrics. And that's for a co- combination of security and convenience purposes. We're seeing a large push toward biometric authentication, uh, including fingerprint, iris, and in particular face. With other modalities like voice, finger uh, or palm vein, gate, etc. For one convenience reason, you can forget a password or lose a device, but you can't forget your fingerprints, iris, or face. I think it's worth keeping in mind that use of biometrics is is still very nascent, and we've got a lot of growth ahead. Fingerprint even seems seems old at this point, but Touch ID for the Apple iPhone was unveiled in 2013, and Face ID was announced 
2017. So we're, we're still very, very early with all of these biometric modalities. Rank One develops core face recognition algorithms, and we offer it to developers through a software development kit. So we end up seeing a lot of these use cases through our partners. I think the, the biggest ones that I'll highlight are physical access control, uh, embedded devices, online banking authentication, including what, what OnFido does, venue entry, and payments. And we're, we're really seeing a, a big drive toward face because it's a convenient and public way to demonstrate your identity. Uh, the first thing that you offer up before you agree to provide a name or any identity data or even utter a word is your physical likeness. On the other hand, a significant degree of cooperation is required to provide an, an iris capture or fingerprint capture. And we, we think that security should take that into account and be thought of as a multi-tier, multi-modality process where face is viewed as a public biometric and fingerprint and iris are used as private biometrics. And one, one reason for that is face really is a public biometric. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures of us on, on internet social media and it, it shouldn't be treated as the be-all end-all for online security. Uh, whereas fingerprint and iris, uh, you'd be, it'd be hard to Google and find someone's fingerprint or iris capture. I think lastly, leveraging orthogonal modalities, including a variety of biometrics and the kind of what you have, what you know matrix discussed previously, uh, will collectively make fraud extremely difficult just because it's, it's hard to spoof any one modality, but it's that much harder to spoof multiple modalities at once. I think I'll, I'll pause there. Hussein, how's this expansion of the digital identity landscape affected users in their day-to-day -day interactions? Well, on balance, it's made it more convenient. And if we go through the evolution of how users historically have been able to prove their legal identity, at first, it all happened face-to-face -face for a very long time. And then we went on to in more recent times using credit bureaus, as David mentioned, a centralized databases essentially of everyone's date of birth, name and address, SSN and so on. But given the breaches, that has lost its currency as far as security goes by some extent. And more recently, there have been new approaches, facial biometrics being a key one. So part of this authentication journey includes ensuring that the person is who they came to be at the point of registration. And as for the different types of biometric, there is no centralized database of everyone's fingerprints or iris. And that's why in large part, our focus has been on your face because we use the face on your photographic ID as the anchor to confirm that you are actually the owner of that identity. So now that users are able to use their government ID and their facial biometric in our use case to register for services, on balance, the change has really been that it's a lot more convenient than having to go inside a bank branch or, as David mentioned, trying to remember uh, if it's a knowledge-based question, you know, what's the third and sixth digit of your utility bill, for instance. Yeah. Cameron, what are your thoughts on this? So uh, I think those are those are all great points raised by David and Hussein. And just to piggyback on that, I think what we have really seen with this proliferation of choice, as you phrased it, or arsenal of choice, is an explosion in ease of use, but also really key educational and uh, knowledge gaps that have really surfaced when it comes to consumers understanding kind of what the privacy stakes of these technologies are, and also just understanding how these technologies work. You know, David mentioned Face ID and Touch ID have been around in, in many cases, I think, over a decade now. 
uh, but the amount of people who I interact with who don't understand that those biometric templates, for example, are not leaving the secure enclave of your device or that you're sacrificing uh, an image of your face or an image of your fingerprint to the government when you enroll in Face ID or Touch ID. Or conversely, I've boarded some flights recently that were international where they did gate, you know, facial biometrics and folks expressing dismay, you know, I never consented to this and I don't know how they got my facial biometric image, you know, and from DHS perspective, well, they got it because you have a passport and they have that photo. So obviously the government knows what your face looks like. It is really this proliferation of these modalities, I think has really made it hard for the average consumer to kind of understand the differences between the ways these technologies are being applied and where they should be focusing their concern when it comes to the surrendering of their biometrics, how they're being applied, where those templates are being used, where they're being stored. And uh, unfortunately, even for professionals in the space, keeping abreast of all that latest knowledge is a difficult and all time consuming task, let alone if you're just an average consumer who's going about your daily life and is just looking to you know, reduce the friction you have for onboarding yourself to open a new bank account, for example. So continuing on the topic around education and privacy and security, in the past three years specifically, we've seen a massive increase in awareness around privacy issues related to biometrics and biometric data. What are the most pressing concerns around biometrics and privacy today, and how are they being addressed? Hussein? So the biggest concern is abuse of privacy and a disregard for it. So the most pressing examples globally as far as a country or government is the Chinese one where everyone is monitored, they have little to no say, there's a lot of political oppression and it's used to profile certain groups. We are aware of the sort of what's happening with those who have been basically put into prison camps in some ways and they've been identified in large part using technology, using facial recognition technology and are powered by some of the very large, very successful uh, facial biometric technologies. Outside of China, as far as private companies go, there is, a, again, a growing concern around surveillance and how that can be used if it's done in a way that doesn't consider your privacy, how it's arguably against your human rights. So the abuse is there, and that's the problem, and that is the concern. What is being done to address it? Well, more and more companies that are dealing and working with facial biometrics or any other form of biometrics increasingly being asked to publish how they do things, what they do with their data, to, to do a lot more of that, and equally to for regulators to get involved. GDPR has played a role in helping consumers understand what data is being held on them and what it's being used for. For us, from the outset, our focus has been to ensure that we are not involved in any surveillance or anything like it at any point. And our purpose really is at the point of registration, is to compare the photographic idea and the photo with the person's face. It's only used for that one-to-one -one essential purpose. So we've also done quite a bit of work around releasing and publishing material exactly on how it works and making it digestible for consumers. So as they're reading it, they're saying that this is helping them gain access to services and all the measures that are taken to ensure it's not in any way uh, abused. And Cameron, what are your thoughts? So I agree with just about everything Hussein said, especially my concern around, you know, what's going on in China. 
And I think from a more domestic focus here in the States, at least the United States, that is the use of facial biometrics in public places or in non-consensual ways, I think is what's really top of mind, both from a regulatory and a consumer perspective. So for example, when you walk into a store, are they using facial biometrics to identify you in some way and either blacklist you or even uh, you know use those facial biometrics to do things like enhancing your customer experience i think the fact that you can be identified just by walking past a camera in target for example um not to say that they're doing this but just to to throw an example of that this application out there is deeply unsettling to people and i think we're starting to see municipalities take the lead in the absence of state and federal regulation around the use of non-consensual applications for facial biometrics with certain municipalities putting into effect or considering facial biometrics bans for you know cctv based applications obviously something like using facial biometrics to log into your phone or to verify your identity would be exempt from that and i think that's the the main privacy consideration that we're seeing and then to drill down on that a little bit deeper on the privacy side you know privacy by design really top of a lot of folks minds in the startup community how can we ethically and responsibly use biometrics in a way that really is not putting our customer base at risk should our systems be compromised so thinking about from that perspective you know, if we are collecting biometric templates, can we encrypt them? Can we get rid of the raw facial or fingerprint biometric data such that all we have is essentially sets of encrypted data that in and of themselves are not completely useless, but certainly cannot be used to reverse engineer an image of somebody's face or something that could be used to impersonate that person should those data sets leak? And David, from your perspective, what are the most pressing concerns around biometrics and privacy today and, and how are they being addressed? Yeah, I, I think Hussein really, really led with the most important stuff. I'll, I'll add and, and kind of chip in on, on Cameron's point. There are some technical hurdles to get over in terms of liveness, anti-spoofing. I think the biggest is probably the flip side of the coin of, you know, the point I made of you, you can't forget your face or you can't lose your fingerprints is uh, whereas you can readily change passwords, security questions, authentication codes, you can't change your face, fingerprint, or iris easily. And that, that I think, is probably going to be the biggest technical challenge, is how do we, how do we shard this data and so, store it in separate databases to avoid creating a honeypot? And how do we protect those, those biometric pieces of data, given that they are kind of fixed for life? And then to Cameron's point, I think we've all seen a lot of noise around face recognition, including racial bias and the invasions of privacy. I've got a little bit different take on it. I think those invasions of privacy have been happening for years in the U.S. I think in Europe, you actually don't hear about it as much, at least from our, our customer base, because GDPR has a pretty effective framework for dealing with privacy in a comprehensive way. But here in the U.S., you hear a lot of boogeyman stories of they're taking your face, they're stealing your face, they're tracking all of your movements by using face recognition. And the they is, of course, the government or large corporate actors. And, and I think the reality is the they that are tracking already have that information. They are using your cell phone data and your internet browser cookies and know far more about you than you realize. What I think has happened is that the, the privacy lobby in the U.S. has 
really attached to face recognition as this innately understandable concept because humans can all do face recognition. And then secondly, it's an extremely personal concept where, you know, the idea they're stealing your face is a lot more emotional than they're tracking your, your browser cookies or internet search history or, or cell phone location. So I, I think what, what we're seeing is these pushes to, to ban technology across state and municipal levels, which is, is really unprecedented. I don't know of another example in American history where any technology has been banned outright. You know, even nuclear technology, we've, we've found useful, productive ways to corral it and put it to effect. But here we're seeing these bans, and I, I think it's largely to spearhead a, a broader privacy platform, which uh, I think there's a lot of value in that platform. And the U.S. is is really catching up to understand what are the risks broadly from large actors, whether it's the government or large corporate actors, knowing, you know, our our daily activities. And I, I think that that those are interesting. One one thing that I've been frustrated to observe is that specifically with face recognition, there are a lot of really easy common sense and actually generally best practice procedures that have been used for the last 15 years or more within law enforcement for dealing with a lot of the concerns around racial bias and around mass tracking. And instead of really seeking to make workable policy around face recognition, they're using this this issue as as that that spearhead and really catastrophizing the potential risks and hypothesizing serious potential harms without acknowledging those current uses, best practices and and common sense regulatory proposals. And I think, you know, really cynically, we hear a lot about, you know, all of the potential for harm from misarrest and misimprisonment. But face recognition has been used by police for the last 15 years. And there's still not a single example of a misarrest or misimprisonment due to automated face recognition, which I think is is a pretty remarkable track record and really doesn't get the awareness that it deserves in this debate. And to delve a little bit deeper into the role of bias and, and the subject of bias, the mainstream media is focused on an important issue in biometric matching, which is that some biometric technologies, primarily in the realm of face and speech recognition, are less accurate on specific subjects. How widespread is the issue of biometric bias? Cameron, can we start with you? That's a great question. And I think it's something that's that's been top of mind. We had a whole programming session dedicated to this at the 2020 No Identity Conference. And I think it's important to kind of unpack this from a couple different angles. The first angle being there are very real technical challenges when it comes to building a facial biometric model that can accurately identify the varying skin tones that we see from people across the globe. And there are certain technical challenges in doing facial biometric matching on folks with darker skin tones that need to be overcome. But then there's another challenge of for some companies, and at, this was called out by NIST in their 2019 report on uh, you know demographics and facial biometric matching, that they have trained their models on a certain data set that they had access to. And for whatever reason, many of those faces were white people, for lack of a better word. And therefore, those models are just not as good at uh, identifying faces for people with different skin tones. So I, I think 
as an industry, taking into account that these products need to be used by the full range of people with different complexions and really making sure that there are high quality data sets available for training these models can really go a long way towards improving the accuracy and, and fairness and equity, for lack of a better words, of these biometric matching engines. And I think we've seen some great work, you know, for example, uh, the folks at Smile Identity out of Africa who have built uh, from scratch a facial biometric model focused purely on being able to do high accuracy facial biometric matching for customers in Africa, that this is not a, a massive technical challenge. In many cases, it's just making sure that you have the proper data sets being brought into your model to begin with. Uh, but I'm sure from a technical perspective, David can go a lot deeper on uh, what we're seeing uh, technically in this space. Yeah, happy to address that. First, I, th I think it's important for the market to understand what are these biases and what are error rates. So there, there are two different types of error rates. One is a false positive, where it says a picture of me matches a picture of Cameron, which is not correct. The second is a false negative, where it rejects a picture of me against the, uh, the profile picture of me. And there's a lot of different use cases, some of which are more concerned with false positives and some of which are, are more concerned with false negatives. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that automated face recognition fundamentally is a filtering technology that is reducing the workload for humans. Uh, there are existing processes for, for all of these paths, uh, including, for example, in, in OnFido's case, there are existing processes where you, you utilize humans to take a look at an ID and a selfie image and, and determine whether or not that ID is legitimate and whether that selfie matches the person or not. And you're using automated face recognition to filter down all of the easy cases and then escalate the hard ones to human review. So fundamentally, this gets down to kind of what is that filter and how, how many cases end up having to get escalated to, to human review. And whether that's, in on Fido's case, a human who's taking a look at those images, or in a physical access control case, a security guard who you have to plead your case and say, hey, my credential is not working. That kind of separate process should always exist and and automated processes are, are really there to, to filter out the, the easy cases. The next point to be aware of is we're we're kind of splitting hairs in looking at de demographic biases because we're we're looking at extremely accurate technology across demographics. The NIST demographic study that Cameron mentioned said that false positive rates vary by factors of 10 to beyond 100 times while false negatives tend to be more algorithm specific and vary by factors below three and tilt in the opposite direction. Meaning false positives are higher with persons of color, uh, whereas false negatives are lower with persons of color at the same, same threshold. So false positive rates are typically measured at one in 10,000, so 10 to the negative four, one in 100,000, 10 to the negative five, or one in a million rates and then you express the false negative in terms of percentages which is one in a hundred so even if if we're looking at, at false positive rates that, that vary by a factor of a hundred while the false negative rate varies by a factor of three that would suggest the false positive rate is at one in a million for white males which is 99.9999 percent accuracy versus one in ten thousand for black males which is 99.99 percent accuracy in terms of false positives. On the other hand, at the same threshold value, 
the false negative rate would be 2% for black males, but 6% for white males at that 3x difference that they cited, which may make an operationally meaningful difference. So it's, it's important to be aware of kind of where the overall accuracy is, even as you're looking at, at relative accuracy differences. Mm-hmm. And Hussein, how widespread is the issue of biometric bias? It depends on the application and it depends on the consequence of getting it wrong, but it is a, a big issue. So if, if we narrow down just on facial biometrics, so for us and many other technologies, as has already been mentioned, folks with darker skin complexion historically have had lower accuracy when it comes to facial biometric technology being used on them. And that as a, the main reason is, is that a lot of these models and algorithms have been trained on Caucasian faces and therefore you'd naturally expect them to not perform as well on darker skin complexions. So it is an issue and it is, has consequences. So it depends what can be done about them. The, it is related to your previous question on privacy though. So for instance, with us, we went and we worked with the data commissioner's office and we said that there's a bias that exists and we want to be able to train our models and specifically do a better job at darker skin complexions. And in order to do that, we have to profile people. So we have to specifically identify those with darker skin complexion and therefore be able to train our models accordingly. Now, specifically, that is profiling, right? But it's done for a good purpose, and therefore we're essentially allowed to do it. And the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK has specifically set up a sandbox to learn about these finer nuances and to enable the technology to address these in a very targeted way. And we we saw a very significant improvement in addressing the biases in, in our specific models. And as a result, we're able to offer our services in places like Nigeria, naturally, and help those few businesses and organizations there onboard people as, and, and have a, a much better experience than they would otherwise. Equally, one of my favorite companies is Thorn.org, and they use facial recognition technology to essentially identify children who have been abducted and are in sort of sex trafficking rings. And they go on the dark web, and they are able to recognize those who they believe are victims and help police identify them and so on. So that equally is profiling, that equally uh, is like very, very strong applications and things done for a good purpose. So there are finer nuances to this. And the answer to your question is, it is a widespread problem and there are ways to address it as long as it's done in a thoughtful way. And how does bias and biometrics fail the end user? And what is the larger effect it has on digital identity industry? Uh, David? Yeah, it really, really depends on the use case, the impact of, of these biases. I mentioned law enforcement always includes an expert human facial examiner. So here, a, a higher false positive rate would mean more in, innocent people are flagged as possible matches for the human to review. But the higher false negative rate would mean that more perpetrators go unidentified by the algorithm and thus not flagged for human review. And I'll also note that demographic bias is is not the largest factor in an an algorithm's performance. Camera selection, operation capture conditions have a, a much larger impact. And I'll also note that all of these performance impacts are are specific to the data set and are not universal across all data. So it it should be evaluated for your specific data set and, and use case. 
I'll also note, I, I think uh, Cameron teed me up to, to talk about how these technologies are, are trained. And I, I think I'd push back significantly on the, the talking point that algorithm developers tend to be white males and thus the white male implicit biases are inherently translated through to their, their product. I think that's really stereotypical. And I think developers are populated by a wide variety of individuals of all, all different backgrounds. And it's, it really doesn't give credibility to algorithm developers who are universally focused on the problem of developing accurate algorithms. Uh, so that's accurate in every use case with every individual, every time. The goal being perfect accuracy, which requires perfect accuracy for every, every sub-demographic. I think Cameron did mention a dearth of training data, which is, is a, a real challenge for law-abiding Western developers. A lot of our global competitors in, in China and Russia have access to very, very large government databases for training purposes. And in, in the US and Europe, uh, our governments are a lot more careful about who has access to those technologies or to those databases and for what purposes. In addition, a lot of our global competitors scrape social media and assemble very large illegal databases for training purposes. And it is, it is really challenging to, to find uh, sufficient training data that is sufficiently representative of the world's population to be able to develop these machine learning driven uh, technologies. So Cameron, from, from your perspective, how does bias and biometrics fail the end user and what is the larger effect that it has on the digital identity industry? I think, you know, inclusion would be the best way that I would sum it up from my perspective. You know, I think so many folks in the digital identity industry across both, you know, the NGO and governmental space and also the private sector and the startup space are, are really excited about digital identity because of the possibility it offers for people to be brought into systems who maybe didn't have access before. And in many ways, biases in these biometric engines are really uh, a barrier to folks getting access to whether it's the financial system, whether it's other systems that I really think is uh, a key consideration when we think about how to move forward in addressing these shortcomings. And to David's point, I think, you know, placing the blame solely on biometric engines and on the programmers is really the wrong approach. It's really a combination of factors. You know, he mentioned camera type and device selection, for example, making sure that for folks who can't afford to have the latest iPhone 11 Pro can participate in platforms that maybe are using facial biometrics to bring people on board is a key consideration and making sure that not just you know, demographic biases in the sense of skin tone, but also socioeconomic status is also a factor that's taken into consideration when we're looking about the impacts of these biases and, you know, which devices can be supported in that sense. So from my perspective, again, it's really about how we can be as inclusive as possible, because I think so much of the promise of new technologies and new platforms is expanding the reach of people to do things, whether it's, you know, take a ride sharing service, list their goods for sale on a marketplace, get access to credit or micro lending or any of these other really cool things that are unlocked by technology and making sure that uh, biometrics is not the, the stumbling block that prevents these platforms from living up to their full potential. Yeah, absolutely. And Hussein? So how does bias in biometrics fail the end user? And essentially, what are the larger effects on the digital identity ecosystem? 
So there is a naturally a failure in that. But back to the specific example of facial recognition and uh, darker skin complexion, that is a, a failure so that a user looking to sign up to a service is at greater risk of being rejected purely because of their skin color. And therefore, any use of technology, specifically technology that is, uh, has some way to go before it becomes more standardized and is able to address all these biases, there needs to be considerations for that. So in our specific application, when our machine learning models run through seeing if an ID is fake and whether the face matches the ID or not, or the profile photo on the ID, we have a human fallback process for outliers. So when the accuracy is not high enough to pass, there'd typically be a, a human reviewing and all the factors would be considered to trigger that human reviewing. So when the human is able to review, then they're more able to have the check essentially pass. So there are these kind of processes that you could put in to address some of these biases and minimize and mitigate the downsides and the extent to which the, the effect that it has on the digital identity ecosystem on balance, given that so many more people are now included and able to access services because of this identity inclusion, which leads to financial inclusion as an example of an application and use case of identity, that the positive effect far outweighs the negative. But there are many other areas that, so David already touched on, that still has some way to go as far as digital access goes. Just one other example is just generally around accessibility. So nearly one in four people in the U.S., for instance, have a disability. And it can be being partially blind, for instance. And you have to consider all these different use cases where if an individual is partially blind, how are they still able to digitally gain access to a service? So we released a accessibility white paper that outlines the different options and approaches. So there is biases is one issue and there are others. And it takes a whole holistic approach to make sure that everyone is able to benefit from technology and digital access in this new age. And in what ways are issues of bias and biometrics being addressed today? Hussein, you did just touch on this, but are there other ways that you're seeing this being addressed? I think awareness is a big part of it. So at universities and different courses, discussing it, talking about it, and, and talking about use cases and examples and how you can address it. So we've started doing more of that, or at least we've been invited to, to go and share our examples and case studies, and it's been a good experience. So part of, in addition to what I've already shared, I think an education and an awareness, as with any bias, right? Education and awareness helps think through the best ways to address these from the outset. And recognizing that they exist is definitely one step in the right direction. And uh, David? Yeah, I, I think uh, I can talk about what algorithm developers are doing to address that currently. But I, I think our biggest rest recommendation would be around how systems are designed and a deep awareness of what these biases are, what performance looks like, and really designing a system to robustly deal with these issues with errors and with edge cases. So first, the biometric algorithm developers are constantly seeking additional training data and seeking to balance that training data to provide a, a representative sample of what will be observed in the real world. So all different sub-demographics under all different operating conditions. So frontal constrained out to fully in the wild type, type uses. There are also some good publicly available testing data sets. And I think that we're seeing NIST move further into this direction of trying to rigorously test demographic bias, which I think is a, a, a good positive step for really understanding the extent of, of these uh, performance differentials. And, and then in, in terms of system 
design, we think that the biggest and most important takeaway is that system developers need to really think about what is their use case? What is their tolerance for false positives versus false negatives? What are the trade-offs? What is the human workload that they're willing and able to support? And what does that mean in terms of, in terms of error? Error will occur. The goal, as I mentioned, is perfect accuracy under every, every scenario, but it's, it's unrealistic because there will be bad imagery that's out there that's being attempted to, to perform face recognition, for example. And system developers need to understand as they're developing the system, how is the system going to, to tolerate error and what, what levels of error, both false positive and false negative, are they going to, to live with? And I think as, as Hussein mentioned, awareness of performance on sub-demographics could, could lend greater sensitivity to errors that would affect persons of particular interest. And I think lastly is it all comes down in every system to where and when do humans enter the loop with external human judgment or on how to, to handle the authentication process. And Cameron, in what ways are issues of bias and biometrics being addressed today? Well, I think David and Hussein both hit on a lot of the major points, you know, making high quality, diverse data sets available to developers is is key. Again, I'll just hit on that. And also just, you know, this conversation alone, you know, things do not improve without a robust conversation and exploring, you know, what are the root causes of this issue and how can we overcome it as an industry? So I think conversations like this are a really key consideration there. And for getting the next generation and current generation of, you know, product managers, app developers and startups thinking from the get-go, you know, how am I thinking about biases when I'm developing my products and how are we working to achieve more equitable outcomes? And then I think David touched on this a little bit, but just to hit on this again, thinking about, you know, how do you handle those errors and what is the process for folks who cannot get a match? Are you building a user experience that makes it easy to understand what happened as a user if there is a failure for whatever reason and providing alternate outlets. So if there you are someone, for example, through disability or for whatever reason, you're being flagged either as a false positive or a false negative biometrically, what outlets do you have and making sure that it's not a hard roadblock in your way if there is a failure of the model, but instead, you know, maybe there's some extra hoops you may have to jump through and there may be some extra friction involved, but making it clear that there is an avenue to getting onboarded for these folks as opposed to just, you know, an error screen, an unintelligible error code that says, sorry, we, we can't process you any further, and you're just excluded from the platform altogether. And what is at risk if these problems aren't solved? David? I'm, I'm actually confident that, that they will be solved. And I think a lot of that comes down to uh, what we're seeing is a, a really rapid pace of, of innovation in face recognition. Over the last three years, we've seen our error rates on wild data improve by a, a factor of 30 times. So it's, it's gone from an error rate of 60% down to an error rate of 2%, and that's across the whole population. We release three new algorithms a year, each of which has significant accuracy, speed, and efficiency improvements. And we're about to release another version that cuts error rates by 20 to 50 percent uh, across all use cases. So I, I again think we're, we're operationally going to solve these problems just through the algorithms continuing to get more and more accurate and surpass human face recognition accuracy. And then I, I think that 
kind of system awareness and education of understanding deeply what are these potential biases and errors and procedural ways to mitigate and address uh, errors, including when and how humans are in involved, as well as kind of circling back to the beginning of this, utilizing multiple orthogonal biometric modalities and involving other non-biometric factors will solve these, these problems. So I, I guess I don't really have a, a view on, on uh, what is at risk if they're, if they're not solved, because I'm, I'm confident that we will solve them in the next two or three years. Right. So Hussein, what is at risk if these problems aren't solved? So there are a few problems we've talked about that I am equally hopeful that as far as the biases go, technology is improving all the time and it will get better. But by a bias is you could think of it as like automated prejudice, which is a big problem. And it, it ought to be recognized as such and addressed as such. But what is at risk is that this new technology that can be used to serve a great purpose for, for different applications including giving seamless digital access to people in a convenient way will only basically help some and put others at a disadvantage, which is a problem. So that's at risk. The other thing that is at risk, back to the privacy concern, so that in the long term is very much freedoms and, and liberty and, and things that we all uh, at times take for granted. So the unfortunate fact is that technologies and these models get better the more data they have. So when you have unfair competition, such as the Chinese government giving companies, facial recognition companies like SenseTime within China privileged access to billions of records and face bus bus, then they will develop the best models. And then other governments across the world and other businesses will increasingly tend to use them. And that is essentially what's at risk is that what is otherwise good technology with good potential is being used or has the potential to be used for bad ends and what's at risk is oppressive regimes using them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Cameron? I think, you know, not to beat on the, the same drum so much, but I think, again, so much of the promise of this next generation of digital identity platforms is built on pulling people in to these ecosystems who have previously been excluded. So I think that is at risk if we can't solve these challenges. Also, uh, to Hussein's point, you know, if we cannot get these privacy and security challenges correct, I think we risk losing the next generation of potential users to, I guess, cynicism, for lack of a better word. But all of these larger issues are really driving at the overarching challenge of building the next generation of digital identity ecosystems, which is that, you know, if you do not get it right so that everyone can be included, the whole system kind of falls apart. Many of these next generation dreams that we have for digital identity are, I don't want to say all or nothing, but again, if you cannot get a critical mass of people and if everyone cannot take part, then they really can't take root. You know, if you want to transition a government to a digital identity platform for things like paying taxes, for things like voter registration, everyone necessarily has to be able to take part. Otherwise, it's never going to succeed. And to overcome these barriers around diversity and biometrics is key towards fulfilling that dream and really bringing forward a more equitable and exciting future for everyone. So I think that's what's at stake is the kind of progress that I think we all hope to see 
around digital identity because if we cannot solve these challenges it's really going to stand in the way of moving beyond the really you know kludgy paper-based and exclusive systems that we have now towards a more inclusive digital future and as a, we wrap up our conversation today with the final question in a future of equal identity what can we expect hussein hopefully a lot more regulatory involvement and oversight and more standards and best practices on how this ought to be done in in the right way equally a lot more consumer awareness and advocacy work and i think just the way we had a period where there were such things as like blood diamonds and now diamonds good diamonds clean diamonds have certification with them to ensure that they're not from war zones or you have the same with fair trade tea and coffee and, and cocoa and so on i think increasingly as we sort of move forward in the future we'll have businesses and organizations and governments that are utilizing facial recognition and other biometric technology in the appropriate way and then hopefully there'll be a greater awareness that those which aren't and there'll be more and more public pressure to ensure that they do use it in the right way and cameron you know i think the the goal for a lot of these systems is really for identity in many ways to to fade into the background and to become more like oxygen in the sense that it is the life force that sustains all of us, but you really can't see it. You only notice it when it's not there. Uh, right now, you notice uh, identity because it is a major pain point. It's a source of friction. It's a source of exclusion for so many people in both developed and developing economies alike. And I think if we can reach this future of equal identity, hopefully identity can really fade into the background where in many ways it belongs, which then opens up all of the use cases, which is really, you know, why we have identity in the first place. You know, um, it's about giving people access to credit. It's about enabling low friction customer experiences, trust and safety on uh, digital to physical platforms that like ride sharing, like enabling you to rent, uh, you know, someone's vacation house when you go to the beach. All of these things depend on digital identity. And if you can pull the friction out and really make it so that everyone can take part that lets identity fade into the background and all of these applications can really move to the foreground where they belong and in the future of equal identity what can we expect david yeah i i agree with uh hussein and cameron i think to cameron's point yeah we we envision a world that's a lot more convenient a lot faster uh i think especially given the the current timing i'd be loath not to mention the with covid and and social isolation going on, we're seeing a long-term trend toward more touchless solutions and more remote applications that'll continue to, to fuel drive toward biometric authentication. And yeah, to Cameron's point, I think being able to reduce the transaction costs in everyone's day-to-day -day life, big and small, is a big future for equal identity. To Hussein's point and to his previous point, we actually agree that, that face recognition is a, a really powerful technology that is being used in China and, and by other oppressive regimes to control their populations and deal with dissidents. Uh, we think that there's there are major risks around the, the privacy side around how the technology is used. We do think that there we're, we're actually one of the rare industries that I think is is calling for regulation. Most industry seeks to to be unregulated, but I think we see a lot of commonsensical ways to to deal with these issues, uh, which are are mainly in the private sector, consent is paramount. 
And in the public sector, there's a lot of different ways uh, in which you can apply existing best practices and require those for, for law enforcement uses. On, on a bright note, I'll, I'll add that I, in a lot of ways, I think we are living in, a, in that future of, of more equal identity. I think it's a, a sad reality that, that humans are far more biased than algorithms, uh, especially in our, our non-professional activities. And, and second, while performance benchmarking is difficult, algorithms are at least testable and repeatable, whereas human bias is largely unobservable. So two examples, eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable in criminal justice. The Innocence Project uses DNA evidence to exonerate wrongly convicted death row inmates and found that over 70% of cases relied on eyewitness misidentification. And similarly, uh, and also sadly, police officers do not enforce the law in a uniformly unbiased manner. Typically, people of color are prejudged as more likely to have committed a crime and encounter police in, in things like stop and frisk uh, far more frequently. And in, in both cases, I think moving toward a testable, repeatable, automated algorithm will result and has resulted in a less biased and more just application of the law. And I think we'll continue to see that expand and hopefully it'll it'll lead to a more convenient society and a more more just and more uh, equitable society. Well, thank you all so much for participating in today's panel that human touch diversity and biometrics. And so concludes the special presentation of That Human Touch, Diversity and Biometrics. To learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, visit findbiometrics.com. I would like to once again thank our panelists, Cameron D'Ambrosi, Hussein Kasai, and David Ray. And I also want to thank my co-host, Susan Stover, for moderating the panel. Our podcast theme music is by Logamrad. I have been your host, Peter Counter. Thank you for listening to the ID Talk podcast. Mm-hmm.